need some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China, then this is your show, China Business Cast. Welcome to another episode of the China Business Cast. I don't know about you, but I have been chasing my China dream since 2005. Oh my God, that's a long time. And I've been living my China dream for the last 10 years. I hope you have been doing well as well with your China dream. But besides you, there are thousands, maybe even millions of people chasing their China dream. Not just foreigners who would like to find their path into China. It's also been Chinese itself, Chinese individuals, and even the country has its China dream. To be able to go a little bit deeper, I looked up a guy who is also known as the China Dream Guy. His name is Fion Wright, and he has interviewed over a hundred people to learn about their China Dream. He's going to put a lot of things into perspective about China's recent growth, how it fits into it in a global perspective, where it's going to, and how the China Dream itself is going to shape the rest of the world. Very interesting talk. A little bit about Fion. He's a, a father, a husband, an entrepreneur. He's kind of also a TV influencer, a KOL, has a lot of appearances and is doing quite well now with coaching individuals, entrepreneurs, family businesses, just to get them in the right mindset and also get their leadership team in the right mindset. He has tons of nuggets and tons of value that I hope you can grab this in this episode. If not, I suggest you to listen to it again because it's truly full of it. Enjoy this episode and good luck chasing your China dream. As Fion also said it, are you closer to your dream today than you were yesterday? I hope you can answer this question in a positive way. Enjoy the episode. Awesome, a new episode on the China Business Cast. This one is quite special. I, um, I think Fion has been sending messages to everyone on LinkedIn. I think everyone in his network has a message from him uh, related to that. So it's pretty cool. I did a recent uh, podcast and his name popped up. I will tell you a little bit more about that. But Fion has been, he's been a TV influencer, a personality. He's a coach, a trainer, and he's also basically the one guy behind the China dream. And that one was really what caught my eyes on, on having him on the show, actually. So thank you so much for having us on the show, Fion. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invite. As you're doing a lot of things during your day, what is your typical or ideal day then look like? Ooh, great question. I love that. You know, as, as a coach, I really work with people on trying to figure out how they can create their ideal routine. And so, you know, I kind of have to try my best to walk the talk in order to be able to do that. So I do have, you know, quite a, quite a solid schedule in the way that I organize my time. And because I'm involved in a lot of different projects, you know, I have coaching clients every day, I have consulting projects every day, I have my own businesses that I'm running. And then, of course, you know, I have two little boys uh, who are five and seven who I'm very active in their life as well. So getting my own time in, um, usually in the morning, first thing I do is I get up and I'll have a bit of time for meditation and then I'll create like a, like a, a green smoothie, you know, just bring in all the good stuff, you know, all the healthy stuff. And, you know, that's one of the things I love about China. You can just order everything, right? And you can, it arrives the next day. So, you know, I have lots of good kale and yummy stuff in there and, you know, actually my, my, uh, my blender broke the other day. My <laughs> wife ordered this new one. It's amazing. It's like a high tech blender. It's smart, like, one. <laughs> yeah, smart blender. I've never seen it before. It's like you press buttons and it does it all by itself. It's amazing. Um, so yeah, I have my healthy smoothie and then I go into usually coaching sessions in the morning, coaching clients all around the world. And so it kind of, I usually do, uh, mornings for coaching and evenings for coaching and the middle of the day is for consulting and my own projects. And then I go in, so every, every, between every activity, I do a little bit of kind of like a meditation session just for a few minutes, not a long one, um, but just, you know, spend one or two minutes just getting into a good space that could be breath work. It could be mindfulness. It could be, I teach over 40 different types of meditation. So I kind of mix it up and I experiment with different things. Then as I go through my day, uh, I switch off for lunchtime. So I, you know, my, my youngest son, he's not in school. 
Um, and so I go out with my wife and my son and we just have an hour of time where we just spend together and eat some good food. And, you know, again, living in downtown Shanghai, there's so many good food options, like right beside us. We're in Jing'an and it's like literally within five minutes, there's a bunch of different options so we can experiment every day. Get back uh, into my routine. Um, and then afternoons, usually that's mostly consulting work. Um, and I have consulting clients all over the world again. A uh, big project at the moment coming out of Hong Kong, which is a lot of fun. They're entering into China and a uh, very interesting space that they're in. It's in wellness and meditation and leadership. And it's a very new concept that doesn't exist in China at all. So that's a really fun project that I'm working on at the moment. And then uh, evenings, getting into the evenings, I go for a yoga session almost every day, maybe three, four times a week. And then after that, you know, then it's spending time with the boys. I usually, you know, read with them for uh, maybe half an hour. And uh, it's bedtime for them, so putting them to bed and all of that. And then spending some time with my wife and a bit of meditation again before bed. Sometimes, you know, uh, I'll find a slot somewhere within the day. I, I do a bit of reading, uh, but it depends on the day and it depends on the time of day. So that sort of moves moves around a lot. Um, and then, of course, being an, an expat here in Shanghai, I do my best to try and connect with family back home. And most of my family's in Europe and Africa. So the time zone is usually in the evenings. I try to get a bit of, a bit of time in with them. So yeah, that's the, the average day. Cool. Meditation has been done your kind of your red line through the day. How is that in, in China? Is that developed or still in an early stage? It's, you know, it's a great question. It's fascinating because most of the meditative techniques that I practice and that I teach other people actually originally come from the East, yeah. you know, whether that's India or China, Tibet, these different places. But, you know, here I am as a foreigner coming into China and teaching Chinese people meditation. I find it quite <laughs> ironic, you know. But yeah, so a lot of the original original meditation techniques do come from China, um, whether that's Taoist or Buddhist for the most part. But, you know, these days I've found that there's people in the West who've actually taken some of those things and developed them further. So like, for example, mindfulness has become a big thing in the West these days. So I think both mindfulness and transcendental meditation are probably the two most popular ones in the West. And there's a bunch of research behind them. Mm. So that's kind of new because now the West has kind of proven that this stuff works in all these different ways. And because of that, they can also test, you know, with EEG, you know, to check your brainwaves and all that, what specific types of meditations work for what specific things. And so that's part of what I bring to China is that it's not just about using the old techniques from thousands of years ago, but it's about saying, well, which techniques are useful for what things? And how can we make sure that we're developing a routine that suits our personality? Because that's one of the things that I do that's maybe a bit different than other meditation teachers is I help people design their own type of meditation that works for them. Mm. Um, and that's usually a combination of a few different things that's based on their personality, based on their learning type style, you know, are they more visual, auditory, kinesthetic? You know, how busy are they? You know, how much time do they actually want to invest in this? You know, how much experience do they have meditating? Because that's one of the biggest factors usually in what types of meditation you can do is, you know, do you have the capacity to just sit down and be quiet for a little while or to focus your attention? Um, or do the thoughts keep coming in and distracting you? So sometimes, you know, if people are beginning out, it starts with just concentration practices, you know, yeah. being able to keep your attention on one thing. Um, and that's where the learning styles come in really useful. If you're auditory, it's about, okay, just opening up your awareness to your, what you can hear around you. If you're more visual, just focus on looking at one thing for like a minute and, you know, don't let any of your thoughts to come in at the same time. And then once you can get the concentration down, now we can go into a, a bunch of different uh, meditation techniques, kind of more advanced types. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I, I love uh, meditation. It brings you a lot of uh, new insights. Uh, most of the time, people say that the answers are already out there. Mm -hmm. It's just up to you to kind of grab them and bring them to yourself. Yeah. So it is quite uh, fascinating. Uh, but yeah, China itself, there's no, I think it's only an on button. There's not so much of an <laughs> off button. And that's also why I think the balance is sometimes a little off and this meditation can definitely help Chinese itself to kind of refine the balance and efficiency yeah. in their daily life. So yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, you know, meditation is one of those things, like in the West, I grew up in, I'm originally Irish, so I grew up in a, a Catholic tradition, you know, and in, in Catholicism, we, we pray, you know, we go to church and we pray and we pray every night. And, you know, I wouldn't consider myself Catholic anymore, but, you know, I, I find some of the teachings from those religions very valuable, you mm -hmm. know, and so having that routine of, you know, sitting down and, and doing grace at the dinner table, like, let's sit down, let's hold hands, let's be grateful for everything that we have, the food on the table, you know before I go to bed, you know, how can I make sure that I'm just centered and, you know, aware of who I am and how I'm sort of bringing myself out into the world. 
And so the more I find that, you know, when I'm working with people, you know, if you can actually take just a bit of time, and like I said at the beginning, it doesn't have to be a long time. It could be a minute or two at the beginning, you know, just take a little bit of time out just to clear your mind, just to be present. And it can make a huge difference on the way you do everything, the way you interact with people, your capacity to be productive, just generally how good you feel throughout the day as well. And so often that's, that's what I'll work on with my coaching clients is, you know, it, of course we get into the business and the structures and, you know, China and the market opportunities. But at the same time, it's like, can you actually focus when you need to focus? Yeah. Right. Are you, do you have the energy levels that are actually going to be optimal for what you need to do during the day? And sometimes it just takes a little bit of tweaking of where your mind is going, directing your attention in, in, a, in a direction that's actually useful. Mm, awesome. So let's talk about more about this coaching and the China business. Do you see any, because you've been doing this for several years, with pre-COVID and after COVID, <laughs> do you see any difference in also advice you're giving to your um, the, the people you coach? Yeah, I mean, there, there certainly is a difference, though it very much depends on who I'm talking to, right? So... For the people that are outside of China, but trying to get in now, it's totally different, right? Because trying to get into China at the moment is, you know, physically getting on the ground here is very difficult, you know, unless you have your permanent residence. But even, you know, doing any sort of business, especially if you're not already established here, it's it's challenging at the moment, you know, to say the least. Now, for people who are on the ground here, that's a different story because now it's about leveraging the boom. <laughs> And, you know, this is actually one of the things that I... I had with, you know, I'll give you one example of a coaching client that I work with who, you know, when COVID started, you know, he came to me and he was kind of like, oh my God, you know, what am I going to do? All my clients, you know, don't have any money to pay me for new contracts and all this kind of thing. And he was sort of coming into it with a very negative mindset. And, you know, I was like, well, you know, if we look at it as an opportunity, you know, how can we see that we can actually offer things that are different than what everyone else is doing? Because if everyone else is doing business as normal or they're trying to, then, you know, you stand out if you do something differently. And so it's like, for example, one of the things that I did right at the beginning when COVID hit China, I wrote this article, China 2.0, and it blew up on LinkedIn, oh. over 100,000 views and you know, all these different likes and people were sharing it all over different platforms, a bunch of you know different outlets translated into different languages and all this. And the idea was, you know, yes, China's been hit hard by COVID. And this was before it even went to the rest of the world, right? Mm. But, you know, China's going to rise stronger out of this. We're going to have China 2.0. We're heading towards this, this long-term vision of where the Chinese government. And this is just going to be a small blip on the radar. So for those people who are willing to, you know, be resilient during this time and keep on pushing through, you're going to have so many more opportunities later down the road because you're going to be so much further ahead than everyone else. Article ended up being really popular. I got a bunch of interviews and different sort of news outlets and things like that. Um, but it was that sort of mindset, that idea that it's like, Look, you can look at, you know, the, the economy is tanking, but, you know, if the Chinese government had also reacted in that way, then, you know, they'd be in trouble. But it turned out that they were very solid, very methodical, very clear about where they were going and ended up being, you know, the only major economy really last year that was able to have positive growth. And so coming into it with that mindset, not thinking about, oh, my God, the business environment, you know, is it is it even feasible or capable? It's like, well, what can you come up with as a human being, as a creative, innovative entrepreneur or business person? that can meet the situation in a way that other people aren't thinking of, right? Mm. It's easy to get lost in the craziness of all the terrible things that are happening around the world right now. You know, just switch on any news channel and you'll see it. But to be able to come back to yourself and to be centered when the world is going a bit crazy, you can look at things in a totally different way. You can see it as an opportunity. And so coming out of this, I think we're going to see a generation of entrepreneurs Uh, or business people in general who have been innovative and resilient during this time. I like to give the example of Jack Ma, right? Uh, you know, uh, that whole, his whole Taobao empire with Alibaba and all that basically started back in the days with SARS, yeah. right? And it, it, it arose out of that time where, you know, it was actually difficult to uh, buy things in retail stores because people didn't want to go out. And so he said, okay, let me figure out how to do this online. And now we've got this entire industry that's built on top of it just because of that single idea. And so I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that those are happening right now, especially here in China. We're having a bunch of entrepreneurs that are coming up with really interesting ideas. And we're only going to see the impact of that five, 10 years down the road. Yeah. So are these the, the, the leaders? Because most of the people you coach are already have a successful business and they just want to excel in themselves or their leadership team. The leadership characteristics that you mentioned, is that resilience and in, in being innovative? Is mm -hmm. that the key ones why they succeed versus others? 
Yeah, I would say it comes to, I mean, I've done a master's degree specifically researching this question, right? And sort of understanding which are the types of leaders that can succeed in these kinds of situations. And there's, there's an, a number of different research inquiries that have come out just in the last few years. Actually, this is a pretty recent field that show us that there are these different stages of leadership development, right? And that we can actually see which leaders have the capacities to be able to deal with complexity, to be able to deal with what we call the VUCA environment and, you know, volatile, yeah. uncertain, complex, ambiguous. And um, what we're finding is that, you know, it's it's actually the same developmental pattern that happens in childhood. So it's like, for example, you know, you have kids, you know, you see the difference between, you know, when they're a baby, it's all receptive. They're just taking information in, right? When they hit around 18 months, two years old, we call it the terrible twos, right? Why? Because they're grabbing everything, you know, they don't have any boundaries. They just go for things, right? Then around, you know, seven, eight years old, they start to understand, oh, rules are actually something that I need to follow, right? And actually rules are something that I understand and I abide by them, right? And, you know, then they'll even follow the rules when you're not around, right? And then around, you know, 12, 13 years old, those rules get internalized as sort of like a moral system of like right and wrong, good and bad, you know, these are the kind of things that I should do that I shouldn't do, all of that. And, you know, so those are, those are what we call, you know, the first, the first four concrete stages where people are focused on the concrete world, the physical things around them. You know, like kids don't care about thoughts and ideas. They care about their toys. Right. But then, you know, we actually still have a lot of adults that are operating out of those stages, you know, where it's like all they really care about is their car or their house or the concrete objects that they can obtain with money or whatever. Um, but we're finding that. The, the stage is beyond that. So after that, you know, once you become a young adult, usually, you know, if you go to university or something like that, you become an expert in something. And so that level of expertise is, is a, is a, is an area where you'll gotta get a lot of professionals, right? Like, and that could be like surgeons to engineers to, you know, anyone who has a very specific expertise in something, right? And they have the capacity to see some sort of specialization that other people can't do, right? Then beyond that, the next level, this is where we really get into leadership is what we call the achiever, right? The achiever is the one who can think long term, who can see big picture, who can come up with long strategic plans. Um, and this is where you'll find most, you know, CEOs, you'll find most entrepreneurs, people who can come up with an idea and actually go out into the world and implement it. Mm -hmm. right? That's kind of like the basic need for it to be like a successful entrepreneur. But now what's happening is the world is getting so complex and it's speeding up so fast that there's so many variables in the air that even that stage of development doesn't seem to be quite enough for certain types of complex ecosystems. And so what we're finding is that the entrepreneurs that are succeeding even more are the ones who are able to access even later stages of development. Ones who can see, you know, multiple perspectives, ones who understand the, the value of diversity, right? Like, you know, things that have come up recently, like Black Lives Matter, like, you know, the whole feminine movement, you know, helping women to get into positions of leadership, you know, people who really care about that, people who care about the environment, right? Really sort of looking beyond yourself and your own success to the planet as a whole and thinking about how can I do something that is actually good for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is leaders at that stage, they start to be able to see things from an entirely different perspective, where it's not about just my success or me taking care of my family. It's now about how can I integrate what I do with the rest of the world? And so there's actually several stages beyond that. And that's what, where some of my research goes into, you know, what are actually the stages that go beyond that? And, you know, I can you know, talk for hours and hours about this. But essentially what we're finding is, you know, the people who are operating some of the most complex businesses out there who are actually doing good for the planet. You know, we hear of companies like Patagonia. There's other fascinating, you know, there's a, there's a fascinating companies coming out of Northern Europe. Um, I mean, you know, I think Elon Musk is a pretty good example of someone who's been able to sort of think long term, think big picture, but is actually creating things that are good for the planet and, you know, humanity as a whole. And so we're seeing more and more leaders that are popping up at these later stages of development that what ends up happening is they're able to come up with entirely new forms of business, mm. right? entirely new business models, entirely new ways of operating. And one of the things that's apparent again and again with these leaders at later stages is that they seem to have different types of like awareness practices that could be meditation. It could be some form of reflection throughout their day. They seem to be able to take time out for themselves just to, you know, visualize the future or just to really get to know themselves better, building that self-awareness. And the more you build that self-awareness, what ends up happening is you have more capacity to be able to deal with the craziness of the world around you. 
So that's a lot of what I do with, with my coaching clients, sort of helping them access these later stages of development, mm-hmm. which we, we all have the, the potential to access, but that requires a certain, a certain level of practice and a certain capacity to be able to go inside and to really look at yourself in the mirror, so to speak, and to say, you know, what are some of the areas that are holding me back? And often what happens is when we do this, we discover that there are things that, you know, happened in our childhood or things, you know, about our family dynamic or things about the culture that we grew up in that we're holding as truths or as beliefs. And they're often limiting beliefs, mm-hmm. limiting beliefs about who we are, the way the world works. And when we can go inside and we can look at those things and we can come up with new meanings, then it it transforms the, the perspective that we have about what is possible and what we can do in the world. So mo- most of your client clients are Chinese or are they international? It's a mix. It's a mix. I mean, they're all, all around the world these days. So um, I do have some Chinese clients, but most of them are, you know, international, right? So, you know, all over the world, you know, literally every continent at the moment, except I don't have anyone in South America at the moment, right? Okay. So literally all over the world. And, you know, one of the things that I have noticed, though, in my experience is depending on the culture there's different there's different propensities or willingness to engage in certain types of activities like chinese people in my experience they if they're going to pay for something they they often want something tangible right they want something they can hold in their hands and so paying for services uh, in china you know when it comes to consulting or coaching or things like that it's it's not easy to get chinese people to put money on the table And, you know, we can relate it to a lot of different reasons and, you know, things like that. But in my experience, it, it, it also partially has to do with, you know, the level of development in the country. And the Cultural Revolution wasn't that long ago. You know, like my wife was raised by, you know, her grandparents and her, her grandmother, like, you know, really suffered through the Cultural Revolution. And it was like, you literally need to put food on the table because all of her siblings starved to death, you know? So like the priorities of making sure that there's enough food on the table, that we have enough money to take care of ourselves is really important. So those concrete physical things are really important. So you'll see, you'll see Chinese people paying for, you know, services, willingly paying for services in, in areas like education. And part of that has to do with, well, you get a degree, a certification, a piece of paper at the end, you know, that can prove that you've actually done that. Yeah. But coaching itself, I have personally found uh, it's a challenging market for coaching. Because people, they want to be educated. So like they'll come to me for coaching and they want me to teach them, right? It's like, well, that's not exactly what coaching is. I'm about supporting you to find your own answers, you know? And so I've found in in my specific industry, the people who are more receptive to coaching are people who've either studied abroad or they've lived or worked abroad or they spend a significant amount of their time, you know, traveling around the world. Interesting. I find the same if I try to sell consulting or somebody wants to explore something in Chinese companies going abroad, they want to enter Europe. Yeah. Can you do some research? I said, sure, but you have to pay for it. Why? <laughs> I mean, if you're going to make this big, you will get a commission. Yeah. I said, yeah, but there's no guarantee that it's going to get big. And I may need to wait for two years before yeah. I get something. Yeah. And quite often there's some kind of misunderstanding when yeah. it comes to providing a service, which yeah. foreigners, when they enter China, they're much more willing to pay For this kind of advice, I think that is changing. I think the 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 openness is is growing to these kinds of services. But I mean, you know, I'm even just in a small niche here in Shanghai, and it's still challenging. So, I mean, Shanghai is is the leading edge in in many different ways, mm-hmm. and and so when it comes to these kinds of things, in my experience, it's it's useful to be able to look at it from the long term, but also be realistic about, you know, what is actually feasible in the next, you know, few years, few decades within China. And so it is changing, but at the same time, you know, there are just clear differences between the markets. Yeah. Okay, let's let's go into the uh, the, the China dream. I mean, every foreigner coming here have their China dream <laughs> and you handpicked a few of them. Uh, I think a hundred of them even. Yeah, I've, I've, I've interviewed over a hundred people at this point. What is the, can you share a little bit more about uh, why you came up with that? And, and then this is on an individual level, but then you have even China, the China dream, yeah. the country dream. Yeah. So can you share a little bit more about the journey of why also you started this kind of interviews? Yeah. Thanks for the question. You know, it was, it was interesting because a few years ago, 
I decided that I was going to leave China. I decided that I was finished. It was because my son had this chronic cough. He would just be coughing every day. And we'd go to the doctors and they'd say, oh, he has allergies. We'd be like, allergies to what? And they'd be like, I don't know. And so it was kind of, it was pretty clear that, you know, he's allergic to the air because it's polluted. And so we, you know, we were looking for different places that we were going to go. We were thinking, maybe we'll go to San Francisco, maybe we'll go to Vancouver. But uh, I had an opportunity to go back to Ireland, where I'm originally from, and to do business coaching there with the top firm in Europe. And uh, so we went back. The thing that struck me most after having, you know, lived in China for, for a number of years was just how oblivious, how naive, how ignorant people were about China and the rise of China and how much it's affecting the rest of the world. Um, I remember going to the biggest tech conference in Dublin um, and D- Dublin's like the Silicon Valley of, of Europe. You know, we even call it the Silicon Docks. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so expecting to be able to hear people who are at the leading edge, you know, who know what they're talking about. And you had the, you know, the heads of Microsoft and, you know, Facebook and Apple and all these people. You know, I stood up at one point, you know, a conference of like 500 people. I stood up with a question. I was like, you know, like they were talking about, you know, the leading edge and social media and all this. And I was like, hey, you know, have you guys heard about WeChat, you know, and, and, and what WeChat's doing out in China? And they're like, oh, yeah, like, isn't that like the Chinese equivalent of Facebook or something? And I was like, wow, like these are the guys at the leading edge. And they have no idea that WeChat is already way ahead, mm-hmm. right? And WeChat's just one example, you know, like in e-commerce, obviously, we have, you know, Taobao and things like that. But WeChat as a social media phenomenon, the West has been mostly ignorant about. Yeah. And, you know, we even see people like Mark Zuckerberg trying to copy WeChat, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, because it just is so far ahead in so many ways. But... It, what surprised me most was not just that the average person doesn't know, but that the, the people at the leading edge of their industries don't even know. And, you know, that got me thinking about, well, wait a minute, you know, if me as kind of just someone who's been in China, you know, and just kind of, you know, I'm not even a tech person, you know, but I seem to have a better understanding of the ecosystem and where it's going and what the future of it's going to look like than, you know, not just the average person, but, you know, these, these top level tech guys, I'm kind of like, wow. You know, maybe, maybe it's important that I share what's actually happening in China with people. And so, um, I started reaching out to, you know, just some of the leading, leading people in the industry, you know, people who are, you know, doing cool things, you know, people like, you know, Sean Ryan, you know, people that are, you know, well known on LinkedIn, the thought leaders, Michael Norris, um, you know, Ashley Gudarmok, you know, just some of the people who are at the leading edge of their field. And just to, you know, get to know a little bit, like, what is it that the people outside don't really seem to know? And the thing that, that came up again and again for me was the idea that, you know, China is an entirely different ecosystem, right? It's, it's, you know, it's behind the, the, the great firewall of China. And it's just so different that people don't seem to get it. There's too many contextual variables that are just hard for people to really get. And so, you know, I brought it back to, you know, thinking about, well, if that's the case, then how can we learn to understand it a bit better? And I thought about like, well, why are people coming to China? And this idea of the the China dream came up for me because I was like, well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we've, we all have heard about the American dream, you know, and, you know, and, and to be honest, you know, it seems to be one of the driving forces that has, you know, driven America to the place that it is today. You know, it's just this, this individualistic rags to riches, you know, like I can come as a, as a waiter and arrive in America and I can build my way up and I can grow a business or I can build my career and I can become rich, right? There's that, that chance for upward mobility. And I think that's become less and less true, um, in America over the last few decades. But in China, that's more and more true. But it's different in China in that the China, the China dream isn't, isn't so much an individualistic dream. It's more of a collective dream. It's more about China as a whole is growing and let's grow together, right? I found out about uh, Peggy Liu, who's uh, a fascinating scholar who's done a lot of work in the China dream space. Um, and you know, she was actually one of the people that influenced the Chinese government to start talking about Zhongbo Meng, the China dream. Um, in that, you know, Quite a number of years ago now, she started talking about how China can become greener, you know, how, how China can actually become a sustainable country. Um, because, you know, clearly from the pollution, there's a lot of things that need to be changed here. So what can we actually do to make the country greener? And she started, you know, educating government officials, you know, all around China. You know, I, I think in large part, she's one of the main reasons why China 
is one of the biggest contributors to actually bring making our planet greener. Mm. You know, you've seen those 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 charts that have come out in the last years that show that you know the world is actually greener now than it was 20 years ago, thanks mostly to China and also to India. And so she's she's been a major contributing factor in supporting that whole movement. But part of what she did also is like let's think about where we want to go long term. You know, it's not just about like short term strategies. And we all know that China has this capacity to think long term. So she integrated into that this idea of a green China with a China dream of like, what is our dream for our country of where we want to go? Xi Jinping picked that up in uh, 2012 and um, he created the whole China dream movement. There's 12 core socialist values um, that I can wrap off in Chinese because my, my kid has to learn it in school. And, you know, it really... Kids are learning it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the first... <laughs> it's hilarious. The first day of school, the first homework that uh, my kid had to do, because we decided to put him in the in the Chinese public school system so he'd get a bit of exposure. And uh, the first homework in the first first grade, first day of school, uh, was to memorize the 12 core Chinese socialist values. So uh, it starts with uh, So Fu Chang is about prosperity. Uh, Minju is democracy. So this is one of the things that a lot of, you know, Westerners and even foreigners in China also, you know, don't necessarily get is that actually democracy is a core value of the way that China operates. But it's not the same type of democracy that we think about in the West, right? Like we talk about liberal democracy or the way in which governments are structured in the West, as if that's the only way that democracy can be practiced. And it's not, right? And clearly it's not. You know, the West doesn't have a monopoly on democracy. Mm -hmm. Democracy is a a human uh, ideal. And uh, China is, is, you know, it's in, in many ways, it's still a developing country, although parts of it are very developed, like the big cities. But in many ways, it still is a developing country. And the, the, the standards by which you, you judge a developing country versus a developed country is, you know, they, they've got to be different. And, you know, as much as we talk about the capacity of democracy to help countries to actually grow and develop and, you know, this freedom and openness, if you actually look back at history, democracy in, in almost every case, you know, in the way that it's practiced in the West came after economic development, right? It came after some sort of an industrial revolution where people got to a certain standard of living. And now it's like, okay, let's open up and let's have this, you know, equal, you know, ways of voting. It's like a luxury. Right? Yeah, yeah. And the places where, you know, it's tried to come in before economic development, for the most part, has been chaotic and has been a disaster. You know, I, I grew up in Africa and democracy has, you know, in many ways pulled Africa apart. And so, but not, not a lot of people know that, right? So there's, there's a great book by uh, Martin Jack called When China Rules the World. Um, and he goes into the history of a lot of this kind of stuff. And it really gives an understanding that, look, China is moving towards democracy, not the same type of democracy in the West. It's moving towards its own form of democracy, right? But it's actually doing it in its own way. And it's taking its time, right? Because it is very much still a developing country. And it requires that you actually get people to a certain standard of living. Like they literally just eradicated, you know, poverty in China, which is incredible. You know, lifting 800 million people out of poverty in a matter of decades. It's, it's, you know, unheard of in the history of humankind. Um, and so they have these, these core values that also need to be seen from a Chinese perspective. So we have uh, democracy as well. Then we have, so it starts with Fuqiang. Mingzhu Wenming. Wenming is kind of like civilization um, and like being civilized also. Um, but at the same time, it's it's one of those things where when we think of China or we think of countries in the West, we think of like nation states. But China is a civilization. It's not just a nation state. It's also a nation state, but it's it's got thousands of years. How many exact thousands of years can be debated, but thousands of years of history that have all led to today. And so that bringing in all this cultural history, all of the wisdom, you know, from Confucianism to Taoism to, you know, legalism to the different ways in which different scholars like Mencius or different scholars who came up with different ways of thinking about how the, how the country can be run, even coming up to sort of more modern ways of thinking, whether that's communism or Deng Xiaoping's reforms and how the economy can be run in an entirely different way. It's like China is not just a country. It's an entire civilization. So that's built into the core socialist values, right? And then Hexia, Hexia, the number four of the values, um, that's about harmony, right? And, and how can we have a harmonious society? And so, for example, in places like America or in many places in the West, the kind of the, the, the big ideal is all about freedom, right? Now, freedom is actually also one of the Chinese values, but it's maybe not quite as 
as important as harmony and, and, and keeping things in a harmonious way. It's more freedom within a certain space. Within a, within a structure. You stay in it, then you have all the freedom you exactly. have. You go outside, then you have problems. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, our definitions of these words are going to be different in different languages from different cultures. And that's one of the things that I think is really important for the rest of the world to begin to understand about China is that it's coming from a very different perspective. I think, you know, in the West, you know, with, uh, in the ways that, you know, the West has led with science and, you know, development of, you know, certain types of technologies and all of that, you know, it has been ahead in many ways, right? But there's, there's certain things that exist in Chinese culture that I think are different, both difficult to comprehend and also difficult to, to value in the same way that they are valued here. And I think that that's going to be have that's going to be something that the rest of the world is going to have to reckon with and really understand as China grows in its size and power and influence over the next few decades. And this is when I then talk about the China dream. It's not just about, you know, you coming to China and becoming successful, kind of like the American dream. It's about you coming to China and contributing to the development of China as a whole, which also then could potentially contribute to the development of our planet as a whole. Because if we look at initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, and, you know, having grown up in Africa, I literally saw how the Chinese are coming in and building roads and, and, and transforming the entire infrastructure system. Actually, I filmed a documentary about that a few years ago, where we went to, to Africa and we traveled through uh, from South Africa all the way up to Ethiopia and filmed, you know, what are Chinese people doing in each of these countries? And the level of infrastructure that China is building in these countries is just phenomenal, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's like some of these countries have basically like one road throughout the entire country and China has pretty much built the whole thing. And so from that perspective, you know, the China dream contributes to like a global development because if we look at the world right now, only 15% of the global population lives in developed countries, right? 85% of the world lives in developing countries. So that means that they don't necessarily have the kind of resources, the kind of uh, access to whether that's education or basic infrastructure or, or medical systems or water or these kinds of things that we really do need as a species to be able to even talk about things like equality and democracy and these kinds of things, right? And I think that that's, that's one of the main factors that's going to transform our planet over the next few decades is how China is going out, um, how the China dream in China is fueling this capacity for China to grow to the point where it can go out to the rest of the planet and it can transform the way that the world is operating. Mm-hmm. Now, from a Western perspective, you know, that's not going to be easy to accept no, because, right. you know, us... And I count myself included in a white person, you know, <laughs> you know, um, us who have white skin, you know, have controlled the planet for the, you know, the last two centuries. And before that, actually, China was probably, you know, the most powerful, you know, uh, uh, civilization on the planet. But, you know, the last two centuries have been led by white people and and, you know, white people, you know, and this is I'm not you know trying to come across as racist or anything because I'm white myself. But, you know, the way in which power has been abused on a global scale, whether we talk about slavery or colonization, you know, in from from a Western perspective, it's kind of like, oh, that's the past. Like that's that's that we, we don't do that anymore. But from a Chinese perspective, you know, which looks at civilization from like three, four, five thousand year perspective, it's like that's actually very recent. Even the last few hundred years, <laughs> you know? they've been quite put in a position where they can feel quite embarrassed or willing to step up and get over it in their own way. Exactly. And so, I mean, China had the whole period, um, which they call the century of humiliation. Yeah, exactly. Which was about literally the West and Japan kind of included in that, which came and did terrible things to China. From a Western perspective, like, oh, that was like 100 years ago kind of thing. And from China's perspective, like, well, that was like, in, in the historical perspective, that was, yeah, that my, my grandparents were affected by that. Yeah. And so if you think that we're just going to forget that and just let it go, you know, like you're, you're very mistaken, right? But it's not about like getting revenge or anything like that, but it's about like, you know, having, having a just system where it's like now China is very much judged on a global scale for whether it's the pollution, which is kind of ridiculous because, you know, everything's made in China. So if you want China to stop polluting, then stop sending you, know? <laughs> you know, like it's almost as if the West has exported their pollution to China. And then, you know, pointing fingers at China for being polluting when it's like, well, everything that you use is made in China. So how do you expect the pollution to not come from there? 
But, but, you know, for China to actually get to the point where it's a developed country, you know, and so they have this long-term vision, you know, the hundred year plan, you know, from 1949 to 2049, where they're looking at becoming a modern socialist country. You know, they, we just hit a, a milestone in 2020 where they actually, you know, got to a certain level of development. They were able to eradicate poverty. And it's, it's another three decades now where they're going to move towards becoming a developed country. And, and so it's, it's easy from, you know, our, our Western ivory towers to point and say, well, you know, China should do this or should do that. When it's like, well, you know, your population already has been developed. You already have good, you know, education and access to resources and, and good living standards, you know, like the, the GDP per capita. That's like, well, how can, how can you put China on the same level when we have to develop to that level first? Um, and I think that that's, that's one of the core things that's going to be difficult for the rest of the world to understand is how much China is really going to transform planet Earth over the next three decades. And my hope with the whole China Dream Project is not to, not to put a value judgment on it, to say it's good or bad or whatever, right? Like you can make up your own mind about that, but it's to say, look, if it's happening and I can't see any way that it won't happen, it seems pretty much inevitable to me at this point. If that's happening, how can we leverage that as an opportunity? Mm-hmm. And so I work mostly with entrepreneurs and leaders to say, look, here's an opportunity. China's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to transform planet Earth. How can we use this as a way to make the world a better place? Right. And I see lots of opportunities for that if we can use that kind of a mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, myself, I'm involved with helping a Chinese company, e-commerce company to go global. Mm-hmm. And just having the, the knowledge or understanding for what it's worth from my side, on where China is coming from and then be able to translate that understanding into a Western mindset just to be able to take away the scary part and make the opportunity part bigger yeah. than the scary part because in the end everyone needs to benefit from it and that's not China is always looking for a win-win yeah. uh, in my opinion sometimes the win will be bigger on their side sure, but sure. if you have the negotiation power everyone would do the same yes. a Western company would do the same if they have the opportunity the other way around yeah. So I think that's uh, uh, fascinating. When it comes to sustainability, you, you mentioned already that China is going to be leading on this. Do you see some examples on how this is, how, uh, real case examples on chi- the contribution of China on sustainability? Well, you know, I think it's it's the way in which it's all integrated so well into the entire ecosystem that is China. You know, like it's there's more smart cities being developed in China than in the rest of the world put together, right? And, you know, if we look at a city like Shenzhen, you know, which is, you know, basically they've transformed their entire bus fleet into electric buses. Um, we see the ways in which they're able to kind of just make a decision and it can just go countrywide or citywide immediately. And that's really what we need at this point, you know, is, is, you know, when we're talking about global warming, we're talking about the challenges that we're facing on a global level. We need fast decisions and we need rollout quick. Um, and that's one of the things that, you know, clearly the Chinese government can do very, very well. And so, you know, when we look at it from that perspective, it's, it's an integration of both the, the way in which the government is planning for the future, as well as the business ecosystems that are evolving. So it's like, for example, every time that I use my scooter, you know, there are trees being planted, right? The only reason is because I just pick up, you know, my phone and I use the the navigational app that tells me, you know, go from A to B and I say, okay, let's go. And just the fact that I'm not actually getting in a car, there's, there's companies out there that are leveraging the fact that I'm using their app to go from A to B to plant trees, right? So that's just like one small example of the way in which technology is integrated into, you know, making China a greener place. Um, and by by result, then potentially making the world a greener place. And there's there's so many of these initiatives popping up. It's like there's another one every day here in China of ways in which this is implemented. And I think the mind-boggling thing about the way that it's done in China is, I mean, you can get these kind of great ideas anywhere in the world, but in China, the scale is just unprecedented, right? You can roll out these things and suddenly there's like hundreds of millions of people using it. And it's like, wow, you know, the, the, the potential for impact when you're talking about that number of people is just phenomenal. And so I think what we're going to see is, you know, the, 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 the combination or the intersection between the Chinese government's planning for long-term sustainability for a green China with the businesses that have the capacity to tap into the scale of the population here in China 
that is going to transform the way in which, you know, we are developing, you know, whether that's products or, you know, whether we talk about, you know, electric cars, whether we talk about um, different types of, you know, energy, whether that's solar, um, like China is just so far ahead in so many ways that not only is the rest of the world not going to be able to catch up, China is going to continue accelerating away from everyone else. And I think that, you know, from if I use the Elon Musk principle of, you know, like if someone else can build it, great, you know, it's like, well, let them build it because, you know, then we can use those in the rest of the world. And I think we're going to see more and more of these kind of sustainable, particularly in the tech industry, sustainable tech or green tech that's going to come out of China. That's going to, you know, revolutionize the way in which we, you know, use different you know, whether it's our, 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 our physical devices or, you know, whether it's our cars or, you know, like Teslas are, are amazing, right? Like, thank you, Elon Musk. But at the same time, they're like, they're not cheap, right? And so we're going to see, for example, you know, a, a, a bunch of new Chinese uh, automakers that are com- going to come out with like cheap electric vehicles, right? And, and, you know, it's, I mean, there's always going to be the prestige of the luxury of, you know, brands and all that. But we're going to see more and more of these technologies coming out that are actually potentially, you know, supporting sustainability on planet Earth. And the, the whole ecosystem that exists here supports that. And part of, part of the reason for that is that the Chinese government has these five-year plans, these, you know, 15-year plans. And built within that, you know, every, every, every other country kind of, you know, every four years they switch up their government. And it's like whatever the last government did, you know, is like out the window because I have to prove myself in, in power for the next four years. But with China, it's like these long-term plans mean that we can build things today that are not actually even going to be useful for the next decade or the next two decades. But because we've put them in place, now the entire country is going to operate differently. So we're seeing cities popping up out of nowhere, like Xiong'an near Beijing, right? Like just an entire new eco-tech city, right? That is going to just change the way that cities operate. And that's going to be a model. It's like a new model for the future of what can be done. And we're going to see more and more of those models coming out of China in the next few decades. How can foreign business owners or individuals benefit from this? Because it's like you either join or you're out. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's to a certain extent, that's kind of true. Like you're either, you're either in or you're out. And I think that the, the, first, the first principle that I think is the most important one over everything else is just respecting the way that things work in China. It's, it's, you know, it's easy to come here and think that you know, you know it all, or you know the way that things should work, or you think you have, you know, certain values that are, you know, higher than other values. Or, but the reality is that China is China, and Chinese people are Chinese. And if you don't respect that their values are the way that they are, if you don't respect that the, you know, the way that the ecosystem works here is the way the ecosystem works, you're gonna have trouble. Right. And it's not just from a, you know, from a government level or a policy level or anything like that. It's like literally Chinese people are becoming more and more proud of the country that they have built. And, you know, if you start criticizing, right, from your own perspective or your own Western value system, then it's, it's almost like a slap in the face, mm. right? It's like saying, you know, you guys are, 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 are less than us or worse than us or, when, when the reality is, you know, Chinese history is so deep and so the culture here is so wide that if we can come in from a humble perspective of saying, look, I'm here to learn. I'm open to understand how things are done here. You know, I might still do things my own way and that's my choice, right? And Chinese people, you know, or even the way that things operate here aren't going to force you to do things, you know, in another way. But if you want to operate in this ecosystem, if you want to leverage this market, then you've got to understand how it works. You've got to understand and respect how things are done here mm. because understanding alone is not enough. Yeah. Respect is kind of like a basic fundamental need. And I think, you know, for the last few decades, the West has been leveraging China in many ways that were not respectful, right? And, you know, I mean, we're even seeing it right now in, in, in America with the whole Asian Europe thing, you know, yeah. which is, you know, it's just, it, it saddens me to hear that kind of thing. But, you know, what's, what's, what's happening is China's coming out now and it doesn't have to listen anymore. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to play by the Western rules anymore. It's more and more playing by its own rules. And like, that's just the reality of it. 
So if you're, if you're, if you want to play that game, then you've got to understand the Chinese perspective and you've got to respect that that's their perspective. You might not agree with it. You might not have the same perspective, but at least you've got to respect that it's their perspective. And more and more I'm seeing, you know, it's, it's less even about the business model or your, your intelligence as a human being or like how good of an entrepreneur you are. We've seen the biggest, smartest entrepreneurs try to come into China and just, you know, fall flat on their face. And it like one of the biggest pieces is it comes down to, do you understand what's happening on the ground here? Do you understand the culture, the values? And do you respect that that is a legitimate way of operating in the world? Yeah, yeah interesting. There's certain kind of maybe arrogance that uh, that's the, that's still there. And it's actually much more about harmony. Yeah. One of the values you mentioned that your kids are being taught already from <laughs> a young age. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to you finding inspiration or knowledge, who do you look up to? What kind of individuals or organizations? You know, I, I, there's a lot of people, right? I, I think that, you know, there's different people in different domains. You know, each, each, whether it's industry or market has its own players. Um, I'm fascinated by, you know, anyone who's coming up with new concepts, right? Anyone who's, who's, who's kind of turning business models on their head. Like I mentioned earlier a bit about, you know, companies like Patagonia, you know, which is, it's, it's just operating differently. You know, I, I, I like the idea of business that can do good, right? Not just business that can make money. And so that's part of when I work with people, you know, it's when I work with entrepreneurs, it's about how can we help move your business towards like a purpose-driven business? How can we make it such that your business is operating from a place of not just, you know, I mean, it has to have a healthy bottom line in order to be sustainable, but that's not the main goal of the company. The main goal of the company is to do something that has a positive impact in the world. And yes, it needs to have the, the, the profitability in order to maintain its structure as a company so you can have employees and so you can actually continue to grow. But the purpose is not to grow your bottom line. The purpose is to grow your impact in the world. And more and more, those are the kinds of companies that I see succeeding. And, you know, I, you know, like as much, you know, hype is around Elon Musk and, you know, the stuff that he's doing. I think he's, he's, you know, he puts his money where his mouth is and he's willing to go out there and try and fail. And, you know, he, he has failed many times spectacularly, but he's also been successful many times. Publicly, yes. Spectacularly, <laughs> right? And I think that we, we need more people like that. People who are willing to, to bend the rules, people who are willing to come up with entirely new ways of operating, entirely new ways of doing things. Because what, what got us here isn't going to get us there, right? And, you know, the, the, the big corporate giants that exist, in the way that I see it, you know, are, are slowly becoming dinosaurs. And there's, there's going to be new, quicker, more agile startups, you know, the same way that we saw Google and Facebook, you know, come up and rule the day. And here in China, we've seen Tencent and Alibaba come up and rule the day. We're going to see these young, new startups, companies, different business models that are going to run circles around the old, bigger guys. And that's necessary. It's part of the evolution of business, right? But one of the things that I find fascinating is that the people who are setting up and running these businesses correlate very strongly to these later stages of leadership development that I was mm-hmm. telling you about, right? The more self-aware you are, the more capacity you have for understanding other people's perspectives, the more, you know, broad thinking you are, where you can see from that wide perspective, the more capacity you have to be able to come up with entirely new ways of operating, whether that's business or, you know, in, even in your, even in your life, right? Having that flexibility to have more choices in every different area of life means that you can thrive in every different area of life. And so, you know, when I see people out there, you know, talking about how they can create a business that actually improves the planet, those are the kind of people that I follow. Mm-hmm. Right? Those are the kind of people that I'm interested in because, you know, I don't really care if a business becomes more profitable or not. I do care if it has a positive impact on the planet. Yeah. And so the more I see those kind of people out there in the world, it's, it's inspirational, right? It's, it's going to inspire an entirely new generation of business people, entrepreneurs that are going to create businesses that, you know, follow in that same vein and they actually do make our planet a better place. Yeah. I, I, last week I had a call with a Dutch entrepreneur in Hong Kong who is digitalizing planting trees. <laughs> Very cool. So 12 countries. You can buy as an individual or as a company. You can go on a location, see 
the tree actually there. Mm. You can chat with the tree like it's an individual. <laughs> you can share it on social media. You can communicate with the owner of the plantage, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, fascinating. And, it, and it's you can do corporate gifting. You can do a, a lot of things around that. I found uh, that kind of thoughts where a lot of Fortune 500 companies are involved now yeah. donating things. Microsoft is a big contributor for them and several others, yeah. which is which is very, very inspiring. Mm -hmm. All these individuals that have these kind of thoughts is, is inspiring. So, we need more of that. Yeah. Yeah, we're trying to wrap up, but I, you normally always ask someone in your coaching, I think, or in interviews, like, are you closer to your dream today than you were yesterday? So where are you today? Where am I today? Ooh, flipping it back on me. <laughs> you know, I, I, I see the dream as something that's continually evolving, right? And, you know, I, I have many, I've had many dreams in my life that I feel like I've already accomplished. And I have many more that I would like to accomplish at some point in my life. You know, I feel like, Getting to uh, leave my home and getting to move to China with, you know, a few hundred dollars in my pocket and start from scratch and being able to build, you know, what I have today, you know, that's, that's a dream fulfilled. Being able to find my wife who is just, you know, the love of my life and my soulmate, like dream, dream, dream complete, you know, you know, check, 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 <laughs> you know, having, having two wonderful kids who I absolutely adore and um, I get to spend time with every day, you know, that's like dream complete. There's other kind of more tangible things, like, for example, you know, I remember a few years ago when we moved back to Ireland and we started our whole live streaming uh, Billy Billy, operation, yeah. Billy Billy, yeah, we had, uh, we'd have up to 30,000 people watching us every day and, and, uh, you know, I'd share with them my dreams for the future of all oh, things I want to do, things I'd like to, you know, create on the planet. And I remember at one point I said something, oh yeah, you know, within a few years we're going to, um, I'm going to have all my income that's coming in online so I don't have to kind of work in an office or anything like that. And um, we're going to go over to North America. We're going to buy a camper van and we're just going to travel around for a year and explore nature and all of that. And, you know, uh, this one guy in particular, although a few of them and a lot of them agree with him, oh, that's an unrealistic dream. Like that, you can't do that. You know, that's not actually possible. I'm like, okay, well, watch me, you know, watch us. And, you know, we've been that's creating videos. Maybe. And, <laughs> maybe even a little bit is kind of like, all right, I'm going to show him. And uh, within, a, within a year and a half, I'd saved up a, a good amount of money, went over to uh, Canada, bought uh, a beautiful truck and a camper to put on the back. And um, we spent a year traveling out in nature, you know, bringing my, my kids with us and, and doing what, what we call world schooling instead of homeschooling, just bringing them around the world, letting them experience different, different contexts, different situations. We actually might still be doing that, except COVID hit and we decided to come back to China because um, it's because it's safer here. Um, but yeah, like that's an example of, of a dream that I feel that I've you know fulfilled. I've I've set up multiple businesses, some more successful than others. You know, so my entrepreneurial dreams. I'm still setting up more businesses and enjoying the whole process of growing them and scaling them. And and so yeah, I, I would say that my kind of greater overarching dream at the moment has to do with this whole you know the China dream and what I like to call the world dream. You know, so kind of. You know, the idea that the China dream, we can move towards China 2.0, which is, you know, this developed modern socialist country and, you know, having the world dream where it's like, can we move towards world 2.0, where it's like, we don't have 85% of the world's population living in developing countries, but actually we're more or less a developed planet, right? What would work, uh, what would the earth be like, you know, when, 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 you know, we're living on a planet like that? That's what I'm actively working towards in my coaching, you know, working with entrepreneurs, helping them be more purpose driven in my own businesses, you know, helping support leaders in different ways, you know, working on different sort of tech projects that I think could accelerate that process, getting into the education system and helping create, you know, personalized project based education for kids so they have the, the freedom to be able to build these kind of things from a young age. And so, you know, that's kind of a greater overarching, you know, dream that I have for my life that I don't expect to achieve in the next decade or maybe even within my lifetime. But it's something that motivates and fuels me. And on the way towards that grander dream, um, there's many other smaller dreams that I still have in place. So, yes, I uh, feel like I'm getting closer day by day. <laughs> um, and uh, there's still there's still lots to happen. I mean, that's that's for me is has a lot to do with. The joy of life is to, you know, have these dreams and to have the, the possibility of them becoming a reality and working towards them day by day, moment by moment. Awesome. Well, if you, uh, the things you've done already so far, and if I only can imagine the things you're still able to do in the upcoming years, uh, it's a huge inspiration, not just for me, but also for others. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. If anyone wants to follow you, where would you suggest them to go to? 
I have historically been very active on LinkedIn. I, you know, write articles on there and I do posts on there. And that's where, you know, a lot of my good friends in my network um, operate. Recently, I haven't been as active and that's partially just because I've you know, been building my own businesses and focusing on my coaching and uh, I don't actually really need any more clients right now. You know, I'm kind of booked up and I'm loving the work that I'm doing. So I'm fine. I don't have to market or anything like that. But yeah, if you want to reach out to me, LinkedIn's probably the place. You know, just search my name. I also have a website, you know, you can go to and, and check me out. And I have a number of different projects that I'm running. So you can check those out as well. But yeah, happy to connect with anyone who's, you know, interested in, in learning more about China or learning more about, you know, how we can have some sort of a positive impact in the world or anyone who's understand, interested in understanding more about, you know, late stage leadership and how we can operate as better leaders that can actually have that positive impact in the world. So. Yeah, thanks very much for uh, having me on the show. It's been a pleasure and I really appreciate the invite and um, want to endorse the work that you're doing. It's great that you're having these conversations with people and sharing those out. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for you. Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry, China Business Cast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.